My son will graduate from NYU Law School in six weeks. And uh, his sister is a third-year medical student, so I can say with some confidence that I feel your parents' pain. <laughs> I'm a military historian, but I spent the first couple decades of my professional life as a reporter and as an editor, as a foreign correspondent, as a war correspondent. I now consider myself a recovering journalist. Uh, and as an author, I write about war. And every scribbler since Thucydides knows that that means writing about love, valor, venality, the foolishness of fools, the knavery of knaves, the whole grand pageant of human behavior and misbehavior. Some look askance at military history as a discipline. It's in very bad odor in the academy, particularly in university history departments. Uh, it's as if practitioners endorse war or enjoy war. The Canadian novelist and poet Margaret Atwood wrote a poem titled The Loneliness of the Military Historian. And it begins like this. Confess. It's my profession that alarms you. This is why few people invite me to dinner. The Lord knows I don't go out of my way to be scary. Well, I'm working on my sixth book now, each about war. I consider each of them to be an anti-war book. Uh, I don't know how you can devote a lifetime of study to young men and now young women dying in combat and feel any other way about it. Why read about war? Who cares about military history? Walter McDougall, who's a professor at Penn, author of some very fine books, says that history itself is the only academic subject that inspires humility, much as theology once did. And it seems to me that military history is especially humbling. Jacques Barzon, the historian and man of letters who recently turned 102, said that any attempt to parse modern history must account for what he calls the range and wildness of individuality, the pivotal force of trifles, the manifestation, manifestations of greatness, and the failures of unquestioned talent. The failures of unquestioned talent. That seems to me to be a perfect definition of men at war. Now, I'm a recovering journalist who occasionally falls off the wagon and periodically I return to write about Latter-day Wars for the Washington Post, where I worked for 20-some years. I do this because I think it's important to bear witness, which is the essence of what journalists do, and because I find that writing about today's military can inform my historical writing. An infantry battalion in Iraq is familiar, similar in fundamental ways to an infantry battalion at Salerno or at Normandy. So, for example, I accompanied the 101st Airborne Division during the invasion of Iraq in March 2003, flying with them from Fort Campbell, Kentucky to Kuwait, and then into Iraq up the west flank of the Euphrates River to Baghdad. And I was at the elbow every day, all day long, for about two months with a guy named David Petraeus, who was then the commander of the 101st Airborne Division. I'll tell you one story about Dave Petraeus, which will tell you everything that you need to know. It was about a week before the war actually began, so it was exactly seven years ago this month, and Petraeus was trying to get all his stuff off the ships that were coming into the harbor at Kuwait. The 101st Airborne travels into combat by helicopter, 256 helicopters. 
and he was trying to find, in particular, the headquarters tent that's necessary to control his division. And we went down to the port one morning, and the Bob Hope had just come in. And Petraeus went onto the ship, and he's looking at, for his stuff, and particularly his tent. He doesn't find it. He comes back off, and there is a young private first class, 19 years old, named Jonathan Aylshire, who's on the dock right next to the ship. And he starts talking trash to Major General Petraeus. And there is a little give and take back and forth, and they end up challenging each other to a push-up contest. <laughs> and the soldiers form a ring around them like a playground fight. Aylshire's 19. Petraeus then is 50. Petraeus says, here are the rules. Elbows out, full extension, chest touches ground, just stay with me. <laughs> and so they start, and the soldiers around are counting. One, two. 3, 14, 15, 16, 22, 23. At 27, Aylshire collapses exhausted on the pavement next to the ship. Petraeus does 20 more, pops to his feet, not having broken a sweat, and said, son, you can take that off your income taxes as part of your education. <laughs> And then we went back to the camp, and this is just before the war is about to start. And Petraeus and I are standing outside alone, and he turns very somber for a moment, and he turns to me, and we are face to face like this, and he said, tell me how this ends. Tell me how this ends. Well, that was the right question then. Seven years later, it's the right question. It's always the right question. Well, a lot of the advice that you get at this point in your lives probably comes in the form of an injunction. Find a life's work commensurate with your ambition and your talent. If you're lucky, you'll find it's a calling. I found my own life's work a dozen years ago. It's called World War II. This is hardly an undiscovered phenomenon. But if you're a storyteller, it's the greatest story of the 20th century not least because it's the greatest catastrophe in human history. 60 million dead. Moreover, it's bottomless. There's more to write. There will always be more to write. The U.S. Army records alone, just the U.S. Army from World War II, weigh 17,000 tons, and no one has ever looked at more than a small fraction of that. There are things to discover, wonderful things. For me, the risk, the gamble, and if you have an entrepreneurial spirit, you're willing to take risks, as I know all of you are. My gamble was to abandon my comfort zone, an often exhilarating, good-paying, important job at the Washington Post in order to see if I could lift my game, if I could make the leap from craft to art. Many of you will take similar journeys, whether you're in the arts or the sciences, as a starting point for my aspirations in writing what's now a trilogy about the role of the American army in the liberation of Europe in World War II, I embrace this passage from the Iliad, Book Four, and it goes like this. At last, the armies clashed at one strategic point. They slammed their shields together. Pike scraped pike with the grappling strength of fighters armed in bronze, and their round shields pounded boss on welded boss and the sound of struggle roared and rocked the earth. That's where I begin. But to quote Dave Petraeus, tell me how this ends.
Well, we all know how World War II ends, right? I can't concoct a beautiful, clever, unexpected ending as perhaps a novelist would. But a couple years ago, I came across a document, not far from here, Fort McNair, here in Washington, compiled by the U.S. Army in 1946 and titled, it was classified at the time, the Army Effects Bureau of the Kansas City Quartermaster Depot. It's not much of a page turner, <laughs> but it recounts in exquisite detail how the Army handled effects, the personal effects of the dead. Not the things they carried so much as the things they left behind. How in the early spring of 1942, a half dozen civilian employees began work in a 300-square-foot room in the old American Radiator Company plant on Hardesty Avenue in Kansas City. And by the summer of 1945, before the war in the Pacific ended, the operation had grown to 1,000 workers occupying four floors in an enormous warehouse. And every morning, rail boxcars would pull into a train siding next to the warehouse laden with crates containing the effects of dead soldiers, as many as 60,000 a month, 2,000 a day. And the crates would be hoisted by freight elevator to the 10th floor and put on a conveyor belt where an assembly line that snaked down through four floors was set up to unpack the containers and prepare the contents for final disposition. Pornography was removed and perhaps a letter from a girlfriend you didn't want the widow to see. Women used dentist drills and grinding stones to clean blood and corrosion from the soldiers' equipment. They washed and mended filthy uniforms if there was enough left to mend. Then workers repacked the effects in a shipping case with quartermaster form number 43 attached. And as all this was going on in another large room, banks of typists banged out letters by the tens of thousands. Letters to the next of kin as determined by Article of War number 112. And the gist of those letters was this. Dear sir, dear madam, we have your dead son's stuff. Do you want it back? They found many things during the three and a half years that they went through those effects. Enemy swords, a Japanese life raft, tapestries, a tobacco sack full of unset diamonds. In the effects of a 29-year-old Army captain named Herschel Horton, who was from Aurora, Illinois, they found a pocket notebook. Horton had been ambushed in the jungle in New Guinea, shot in the right leg and hip, he dragged himself out of the beaten zone into a little grass shanty, and in the several days it took for him to die, he wrote an extended final letter to his family in the notebook. And it begins like this. My dear, sweet father, mother, and sister, I lie here in this terrible place wondering not why God has forsaken me, but why he's making me suffer. That's how it ends. That's how it always ends. That's my life's work, to ensure that we all understand that. Thanks very much. I look forward to turning this into a conversation. Thank you.
Thank you so much for being here today. My name is Amita Swadeen. I'm an MPA student at NYU's School of Public Service. As an undergrad, I was actually at Georgetown School of Foreign Service and got the opportunity to study a lot of military history, including a class I took called Women's Representations of War in the 20th Century. And we studied a lot of work by Christiane Amanpour and made a large impact on me at the time. I wonder if you could comment on the power of storytelling in the Vietnam War and in past wars in the media, in mass media, and uh, whether you see a difference at all in the way the Iraq war and the occupation of Afghanistan has been reported here, and how, if at all, you think corporate interests in the media are tied to that, uh, if there is a difference between the way the two wars were reported on and what you think the effect on public opinion is? Oh, well, that's a concise uh, topic, but it's a, <laughs> but it's a good one. Um, you know, I frankly, uh, I, I spend a lot of time with, uh, metaphorically, with reporters, correspondents, war correspondents from the Second World War, and they are an astonishingly competent, capable, powerful <coughs> bunch collectively. Uh, and it's tempting to say, well, there's, you know, we will not see their like again. They, they were a gentle, obsolescent breed, like unicorns, and they'll, they'll no longer walk this earth. <laughs> the truth is, I think there are some very, very fine reporters out there uh, uh, doing really hard work. Iraq was as hard a place to work for a while as any war anywhere ever has been, and Afghanistan is not much easier now. Um, you know, reporters, I was among them, uh, came in for a share of grief uh, after the invasion of Iraq for being too enthusiastic about everything and not being diligent enough in investigating the casus belli, not looking at whether or not the Bush administration's contentions that we needed to go to war because there were weapons of mass destruction was in fact true, whether in fact there was sub substantive evidence. And I will tell you, about the same time that Dave Petraeus was down there doing push-ups, he said to me one day, I'm not so sure that containment has run its course. I would say that the press generally uh, is guilty of that, and I include myself in the group. Um, whether there are corporate interests involved, no, I don't think. The Washington Post is it's publicly traded, but it's owned by the Graham family. Uh, Don Graham has no corporate interest in supporting Don Rumsfeld or President Bush or others who were pushing for this war. None. Uh, and I would say the same for the Salzburgers and the New York Times and most of the other what we now call mainstream media. Um, so. You know, I think the bottom line is that uh, it's a different time. It's much more, I'll, I'll, I'll finish the answer looking at it this way. There were 16 million Americans in uniform in World War II in a country of 130 million people. Today there are about 2 million people in uniform in a country of 307 million. In World War II, everyone had skin in the game. Everyone had someone at, miss, at risk. Uh, today, almost no one has skin in the game. Those who do have a lot of skin, but it is a very small percentage of the overall population. And so consequently, the audience has changed a lot. And the ability for even good reporters to grab an audience by the throat is quite different. Not to mention all the changes in media. Obviously, there was no television in 1943. So that's a really good question. Good dissertation topic. <laughs>